And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be talking about travel. And it's a conversation that we share with others, and you could be part of that conversation. You could either email us at FromerTravelShow at Yahoo.com, or you could follow us on social media and hit us up there. You just have to look for the word Fromers, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S, on Pinterest, on Twitter, on Facebook, on, you know, all those uh, platforms. As well, even if you don't want to be on the show, we hope you'll visit us during the week at fromers.com. That is our website. We work darn hard on it. It has lots of great information that really could make your next trip better. So that's fromers.com. Now, previously on this broadcast, we have talked about the lawsuits that two state prosecutors have brought relating to the so-called resort fees that so many hotels add to the charges when which you learn about when you check out of the hotel. Uh, one of those officials is the Attorney General of Nebraska, and the other is the Attorney General of the District of Columbia. And both officials claim that resort fees are deceptive in their very nature, and they must be found to be illegal. It is fairly apparent that if the two legal officials succeed in their lawsuits against such important hotel chains, that it will then be far more difficult for any hotel in the United States to suddenly impose a resort fee on their guests. A resort fee, again, that the guests usually learn about only when they are checking out from the hotel in question. But now another development reveals how tenuous is the effort by American hotels to charge such additional resort fees. The earlier effort of two legal officials to ban resort fees has now been joined by two members of Congress, of all people, a Democratic congresswoman and a Republican congressman, who have now introduced a bipartisan statute in the House of Representatives requiring that hotels that do impose resort fees, they must include those fees in the very first statement of charges that are presented to would-be hotel guests instead of making those fees illegal in themselves. Not illegal, but hidden. Well, the other other effort made by the two state prosecutors... Oh, I see, was to get rid of them altogether. ...is to get rid of them altogether. But but the people in Congress have created legislation which they are producing that would require hotels to advise, to advise rather, would-be guests in the very first advertisement or the very first disclosure of hotel charges to such guests. Most of us make a hotel reservation by calling up over the telephone. No, most most go on the Internet. Well, all right. Or they do. go on the Internet. But the two Congress people are saying, at that moment, yes. you must be told that there is a resort fee so that you can decide whether you want to continue with the reservation. And that will be not just on the hotel's website, but say you go to Expedia or you go to Kayak, the first price you see will include the resort fee for every hotel that 
charge now, as well. The, the hotel, in other words, cannot just simply spring such fees upon a guest who has not been earlier advised right. that there would be such fees. If the would-be guest makes a reservation over the phone or on the Internet, talking or conversing with a hotel reservationist, they must be told at that very moment that there would be a resort fee added to the charges for their hotel room. That requirement in the proposed legislation is meant to answer the chief reason that some hotels usually propound for charging resort fees. When when you ask them, why in the world do you have to have a resort fee, they will point out to the fact that a resort fee encounters a lesser form of taxation than normal room charges. Mm. And by, yeah. by permitting such fees, but only if their disclosure is not deceptive, the legislation of these two members of Congress removes any possible justification for the use of such fees. Now, it is probable that the House of Representatives will pass this legislation. I if I were to so. predict it, I would think that yeah. the House of Representatives, but it is also probable, Pauline, that Senator Mitch McConnell oh. of the Senate, in the Senate, that he will prevent the bill from coming to you a vote. Think he, so? That's he is infamous yeah. for blocking the passage of any similar legislation, mm. such as his usual behavior. And as a result of that, it is up to us, not to Congress, and it is up to all of us to support this proposed law against which. There cannot be any justifiable objection. Well, Pauline. yeah, I mean, it, it does have bipartisan support. And what it is, is it's just saying, look, it's a deceptive practice, a deceptive advertising practice. You go to Expedia, you see a list of 20 fees for hotels and you make your choices based on that. Why not show the consumer all of the fees in that first screen. It just makes sense. Pauline, I could not agree more. The travel industry itself must lead the fight for requiring procedures that protect the public from being misled by and these travelers. utterly outrageous resort fees, as they are called. Yeah. All too many cases, there is no resort activity whatsoever in the hotel <laughs> in which you've just you you haven't stayed at a resort, right. and yet they they they, they charge they, that. They, in they, those cases, they call it a facility fee, but it's the same oh, thing. It's, right. it's Pauline, garbage. Let's let's move on. Let's talk about the recent meeting of the General Assembly of the United Nations that was called to discuss climate change. There were people all over the world that followed those deliberations, which have a great importance for all of us. But a smaller number of people are aware of a smaller meeting of representatives from the travel industry, which took, it around, took place at around the same time, huh. in which travel organizations discussed the frightening possibility that climate change may bring about an end to the activity of travel yeah. as we know it. Attending that meeting were representatives from Carnival Cruises, from Royal Caribbean Cruises, from Hilton Hotels, from hmm. Intercontinental Hotels. Those representatives discussed a great many possible issues relating to the environment, but they talked in particular about the dangerous carbon emissions of air and sea travel. It is only recently that all of us have become aware of the fact that the thousands of flights over the earth at any one time can contribute harmful emissions to our earth. 
And they are generally agreed, these various representatives of the travel industry, that uh, we we had to find a solution to this or we would risk extinction of the activity of travel. Now, Hmm. interestingly enough, there was one of the speakers there who claimed to have a solution. He spoke of the vital research that must now be undertaken to permit short-haul flights to be made using electric engines in the same wow. way that we have electric cars now. Uh-huh. Thanks to Mr. Musk. Sure. Uh, it is apparently possible also that we may have electric airplanes huh. that have enough electricity to keep the airplane flying for a short haul flight, a flight right, of 100 right. miles, 75 miles or thereabouts. And he also points out that we must also perform the research that will permit us to operate long haul flights using synthetic fuels that do not give off carbon emissions. Mm. Now, he claimed that these two advances could solve the problem, but discovering the solution will require immensely heavy researched activities that cannot be imposed upon an isolated airline or ship line or just, just one of several. They cannot bear that burden. He went on to claim that it is government that must require Hmm. that all airlines and all ship lines must be made to devote a portion of their income to such research efforts, that these are thinkable. These are very interesting uh, interesting research efforts. This is surely an approach that we must now study. Right. And if that research can be found to cure the problem, it is surely something that the world must require of the travel industry. Uh, If I were to ask to sum this all up, I would use such words as bold and imaginative. Bold and imaginative actions by airlines and ship lines uh, is badly needed. Well, especially if this can be done globally, because, you know, a lot of these ship lines are actually flagged in different countries. They may have headquarters in Miami, but they actually belong to the Bahamas or, you know, another area of the world. It is possible that despite all of this, it is absolutely necessary that they devote some some, uh, study and some money and some research to the solution of this problem. No, and, and, you know... Aircraft emissions contribute 2% of the carbon emissions on the planet. Pauline, I've told, I've Uh, I've I've heard reference to 5%. Really? Interesting. It's it's even more important and more dangerous than any of us know. Well, but, you know, even with that 2% or 5%, it all adds up. And I'm so happy to hear that, that people in the travel industry are really starting to take a proactive response to this because they're understanding uh, that it, it, it will eventually kill their business if they don't. And it will kill all of our wonderful adventures as travelers. Uh, so uh, bravo to the people in that meeting. I hadn't read about it, and I'm glad to hear about it. We have to take our first break of this hour. Don't turn that dial, though. We'll be talking more about travel after these messages.
Welcome back to the travel show. And I got to say, we are the luckiest travel hosts today because in the studio, we have Patricia Schultz. I hope you know that name. She is the author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And she's got a new version of it. And it's glorious. It's a beautiful, photo-driven coffee table book. It's the deluxe edition. Welcome to the studio, Patricia. So good to see you. I would like you to keep on describing this glorious edition. (laughs) It's our new baby. It's really beautiful. Yeah, we had actually we had a wonderful time creating it because it was a real departure for me. I had never done a book or a publication of that kind, a a hardcover, leather covered. It's almost ten pounds. um, Versus the size of a coffee table. It's not just a coffee table book. You could put legs on it and use it as your coffee table. Thank you. (laughs) Good idea. But no, it really, I mean, it's a, it is the perfect gift. I mean, it really does look very well, substantial. Well, from your lips. <laughs> well, and, and like it, it shows you care about the person you're giving it to. Before we get into this edition, I want to get the backstory. Uh, tell us how the 1,000 Places to See Before You Die book came to be. And, and how long, when did the first one come out? Oh, so we're going back a while. Um, I had been getting my grounding, my university of travel um, in the world of Fromers, having worked for... Yes. Did you know that, Dad, that Patricia worked for us? Yeah, for many years. For many years. But this was back in the 20th century. (laughs) (laughs) And I had um, used Italy, which essentially was my... uh, my the region that I covered as my base. And from there, I was traveling into northern Africa and throughout Europe and into mm. the Middle East. And I was spreading my wings and, you know, kind of striking out farther afield. And I came to know more of the world and wanted to put it all between two covers. And I had done a book previously with um, an American publisher called Workman. Love them. Great publisher. Wonderful. Yes. I was so happy and I learned so much. It was about... It was about uh, Italy. It was called Made in Italy. Mm. And they had kept me in mind. And I got a phone call asking if I had any other book ideas in mind. Would I like to come in and discuss, you know, a possible second project with them? So we bounced this, you know, this... um, project around. The working title was 100 Drop Dead Places, which was not my choice of a title. In fact, it still gives me the heebie-jeebies, but you get the idea. And they thought if we added a zero, it would look better. And if we tweak the drop dead thing to be places to see before you die. I mean, at that time, it was considered rather alarming. Yeah. It was not yet part. Yeah. Patricia, did you have a hesitancy about putting in the word before you die into the title of you the You know, book. Peter Workman had no hesitancy. <laughs> and he was kind of the go-to man of, you know, vision and marketing. And nobody quite questioned him except maybe a few people <laughs> thinking that it was very alarming. Frankly, yeah. uh, all the rest of us would have turned it down based, yes. based on that. And then yet the book that you did apparently proceeded to sell over three and a half million copies. I is know. That, we're still is pinching that, that ourselves. Is a record. That is a record in travel publishing, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. And what s- continues to amaze me today is that it remains a best-selling <laughs> book because it's one person's voice People often think that I have a team or I'm one of many. It's actually me. But Um, you haven't 
been to all 1,000 places, yes, that's have our you? secret. That's, Make oops. sure no one knows. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I've been very straightforward because you'd either need to be, you know, live to be 400 years old yeah. with, you know, deep pockets or you need to write about what you know. And that was what Peter Workman said. Don't expect to know every place and to write about everywhere. For those of you tuning in late, we are speaking with Patricia Schultz, the author of 1,000 Places to See Before You Die, and now a new deluxe version of that book, which is absolutely beautiful, filled with gorgeous photos. So I'm sorry, I I interrupted. No, no, no. Oh, but to just finish that thought, how many places have I seen? Yeah. Um, There, I would say, and I haven't yet kind of, you know, paged through it um, entry by entry, but I would say it's about 80%, 70 or 80%. And those other places that, you know, I mean, you just know that the Grand Canyon or the Serengeti or the Taj Mahal or, um, you know, this. Are those places you haven't been? No, but um, (laughs) places of that. Type those right. iconic places that maybe I haven't yet made it to, but you just know are not going to disappoint. Right. Um, I do try to see them and kind of check them off as you know the days go by, and with the next update or revision, they either come out or they get rewritten or um, well, substituted. This, this leads me to ask. What is the place that's in the book that you want to see before you die, but haven't yet? So who's been to New Zealand? I have. So you can tell me I'm totally remiss in not having visited. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. I have (laughs) never spoken to a single person who has been anything less than just blown away by its I got to say, I liked it better than Australia. I (gasps) thought it was much more beautiful with friendlier people. Not that Australia was (laughs) anything to, to sneeze at. It's a great country, too. But New Zealand really blew me away. I remember you talking to me about it and me feeling just a small twinge of jealousy once more (laughs) that I've been to Australia a dozen times. Mm. But, you know, it needs its own time. You can't just stop for three days on your way to Sydney. I mean, you need to see the North Island and the South Island Mm -hmm. both because I understand they're quite different, right, each from the other. So you need a chunk of time. And I think that for me, for you, for everyone, you know, it's always time and money, money and time. I just never, you know, you have a lot of one and none of the other or often none of either, (laughs) but it often determines what you see or how you travel once you get there, how long you stay. Do you know what is the most popular place in your book, what most people get to before they die? Is there one of those destinations? I just read, um, and it's, you know, the the, um, survey of the moment, and it changes from year to year, that Spain has become the number one most popular destination in the world. And I just, yeah, yeah, I just returned... three days ago from Spain. And it's surprising because it doesn't seem terribly crowded well, or well, You were walking the Santiago, the Campostello de Santiago. The Camino, The yes. Camino, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is the ancient route that pilgrims have walked for centuries. I know, pretty comical to imagine me walking a 500 mile (laughs) pilgrimage route. I said, where's the subway? Is there an Uber? Um, But it was a a very, very, very rewarding um, experience. So Barcelona is crowded, Madrid is crowded, but the Camino, there are corners that are just empty. We have to take a break. We'll be back with more with Patricia Schultz.
Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm here in the studio with my father, Arthur Fromer, and our very special guest, Patricia Schultz, author of the new deluxe edition of 1,000 Places to See Before You Die. Now, in this book, there are photos of every single of the 1,000 destinations. Did you have one photographer, many? I mean, how did you source all those photos? Well, not having ever done a book of this kind before, I think in my you know fantasy, I imagined that we'd be finding the best of the best and sending them off to every corner and continent. But the reality is that we um, drew from photo archives, uh-huh. some of the finest. In fact, the selection was so overwhelmingly gorgeous and beautiful that, hmm. that it was quite impossible at times, you know, to narrow it down to just a dozen or just three. And then finally to the, because so a photo speaks a thousand it words. Did and you, you change the words because of the photos? Well, the the, the words per se are really just um, elaborate captions. It's uh-huh. mostly just photos mm. with some cryptic explanation of um, where it is and why you need to go there. But it's all about the photo. And um, we tried to select that most outstanding image that's just going to have you grab your passport and run to the airport. Yeah. Now, Dad, I know you got yeah. the book in the, in the mail. Did you have well, any I, questions? Well, I got it in the book. It, it was mailed to one of our authors, Paul. Right. And I have to, I have to get my get rid of it and give it to one of our well, authors. Well, you can probably keep the, it. Can you keep it, <laughs> Patricia? Yes, yes I you will can. go out and buy my own. I yes. would not not be without it, frankly. Yes. It's, it's a superb book. It's a heavy book. Yeah. Uh, it is a book again that I marvel at because if someone had brought me a book about going to see places before I die, I would have turned. I would have sent <laughs> it to the to the door. I right. would have gotten rid of that person. <laughs> Patricia broke the taboo you know, and, and it's funny, and I think it came out at a time following September 11th, uh, that there still was a certain sensitivity about, you know, leaving home. Home was, you know, always the safe place, and guess what? Suddenly it no longer was, mm. as we perceived it to be. Wow. So to put die on the cover, you're right. It, it did alarm some people, but mostly I think it was a call to action. Right. You know, time is precious, life is precious, there are no guarantees, carpe diem, make it happen, and the time is now. There's no better time than the the present. Now, is there are there some destinations that people have quibbled with at, over the years that people are surprised to find in the book? Well, you know, I've heard all kinds of responses, and <laughs> I do have very uh, tissue thin skin, um, <laughs> but I like to hear the response, and people are very vocal. Oftentimes, it's why did you include that? Now it will be overrun, or I can't imagine you didn't include this. Well, I simply didn't know, or I never knew that it needed to be visited. Have you been yourself? So it really encourages a lot of conversation and engagement and exchange and sure you're never going to you know you're never going to please everybody everybody but all the time is there one give us an example of one destination that might surprise people but that you think is definitely worth visiting well, I think all of the icons, you know, people mm. go and they see the crowds. Oh, I'd rather die first. Well, right. no, it's an icon because it's pretty astonishing. Yeah, yeah. You know, do you want to wait in line, um, you know, three hours to see the Statue of Liberty? Well, if you're only visiting New York once, I would kind of figure that into my schedule. Yeah. It's, it's gorgeous. It's the only thing of its kind. It's representative. And for me, it's America. So um, you need to be careful about what you um, offer to people. That's why with the choice of when 
10,000. I mm-hmm. think people will be hard pressed not to find just a few hundred yeah. <laughs> to keep them busy. Um, is all 1,000, you know, representative of every person's bucket list? No, but I think you need to choose those places that jump off the page to you and say, right. oh my gosh, this is it. This is me. We are speaking with Patricia Schultz, the author of The New. 1,000 Places to See Before You Die, which is known as the deluxe edition because it's filled with beautiful photos. Now, one of the things I think you do in this book that's a real public service is it's it's a geography lesson. This is a subject that isn't taught in schools much anymore. And oh, it's so, just so heartbreaking. Yeah. And I so, read the other day, I'm sorry if I interrupt you, yeah, I ahead. read the other day the number of Americans who never leave the state within which they are born. And then the only um, follow-up numbers were those who had never left the tri-state area. Wow. Right. And it's, I mean, we all know, I think the numbers that 35% of Americans hold passports. Mm-hmm. But of those, you wonder how many are in the sock draw, those passports never being used. Right, yeah. And those people who consider, you know, an outing to throw the kids in the back seat and go to Dairy Queen and buy yeah. ice cream. So it really was meant to be, you know, an eye-opener. And it's divided into geographical regions of the world. So that if you know you want to go to South America, but you don't know where to begin, we'll just page through that section. Mm -hmm. Or if you've always heard about the islands of the South Pacific, but thought it was all about, you know, Tahiti, well, here are a couple, you know, dozen. What are the other islands that you cover? Well, there are Cook Islands, Mm. and there's, um, Tahiti is, uh, of course, French Polynesia with five island groups, each one quite different. And then in America, So if you're one of the 35% or the 65% who don't hold a passport... Hawaii is kind of amazing to me because it's so Polynesian and it's mm-hmm. like another world and yet it's part of our wonderful US of A. Yeah, absolutely. And in Africa, what do you think is the best um, uh, beginner place to go in Africa? Well, there's, of course, North Africa. And then there's sub-Saharan Africa. So, And when we think of sub-Saharan, we always think of the safari uh, countries, which are five or seven or eight in Central and Eastern. And Kenya is the kind of go-to safari. They were one of the first. Teddy Roosevelt put it it on the map. But there's also Botswana. And I just did Uganda for the gorillas. Wow. Oh, I know it was a wow experience. Oh, my goodness. So there are a whole number of them. And then Northern Africa, Arab Africa that I was mentioning. Is incredible. I've been to Morocco. Yeah. Uh, just blew my mind. I know, it's wonderful. Well, we have been having so much fun. Unfortunately, we have to say goodbye to Patricia Schultz, but you get to enjoy her company if you buy her terrific book in its deluxe edition now. That is 1,000 Places to See Before You Go. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to The Travel Show, and travel includes camping out. To help us talk about that and new developments in that field, we have Elaine Glusak. She is a writer for The New York Times. She has a terrific article right out right now called Why Buy That Expensive Tent When You Can Rent. Welcome back to The Travel Show, Elaine. 
Hi, Pauline. Thanks for having me back. So before we get into the renting of tents, tell us how widespread is camping as an activity? Uh, Camping is apparently very popular. Uh, According to the Outdoor Industry Association, uh, nearly 42 million Americans went camping at least once in 2017. Wow. Uh, That's the most recent year. Yeah, so that's a lot. And um, people generally spend $546 uh, per adult on camping gear. So that, too, is a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. This this uh, article hit a note with me because many years ago, I decided to go and take a road trip in Alaska, and I was so shocked by the cost of hotels in the high season there, I decided to camp out. But I didn't want to bring camping gear on the plane to Alaska. That just didn't make sense to me. Uh, And so I looked into renting and it was very difficult. I ended up borrowing uh, uh, stuff from a a local Alaskan that I was put into contact with. But that's gotten easier recently, right? To rent materials. That's right. Um, There's a number of, of, uh, there's a few companies that do it. But there's uh, one new one that does it nationally, which um, I reviewed for this time, and it's called Arrive. Um, and what they do is you order your camping gear. Let's say you're going backpacking, as I did for the story, and you need a backpack, you need um, uh, a sleeping bag, you need a tent, a sleeping pad, maybe cooking gear. You can rent the whole kit from them, and um, they will ship it to wherever you're going. So, like, if I'm going to the Grand Canyon they'll ship it to somewhere um, nearby that has a FedEx center. Huh. Um, I can pick it up there and then carry on. And then when I come back, I just uh, reship it uh, from the same FedEx center that I picked it up at. And uh, it makes it a lot easier for travelers, as you said, that are going to remote places. Right, especially with the, the fees for uh, bringing extra stuff on planes. Now, you said that the average American spends $546 per person on camping gear. How does the rental fee compare to that? So the rental fee um, that I paid, I got a full backpacking kit. Um, and that was well, for two. My husband and I both went. Yeah. Two hundred and forty-three dollars for the both of us, and arrived with the value of the like if I bought everything, it would have been sixteen hundred dollars. I'm sorry. Um, could I'm you not, say that again? You, you, it was hard to hear you. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, we paid two hundred and forty-three for two people for a full backpacking set, uh-huh. and arrived with the retail value at sixteen hundred dollars for that gear, um, and we had it for three days. Um, so. And everything was new. So it was very, um, you know, the, the quality of the gear really made a difference to us. And so when you say a full backpacking set, obviously that includes a tent. Did it include cooking gear? Did it include, you know, those nice pads that make it more comfortable to sleep on the ground? Did it include the sleeping bags? What does full gear mean? Yeah, it did. Um, it included the two-person tent, um, two backpacks. Um, two sleeping bags, two sleeping pads, which I have to say felt like an indulgence, but were really fantastic and quite lightweight. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we also got a stove, uh, cooking pans, and two headlamps. So wow. really, yeah, you just need to get fuel for the stove, um, you know, food, um, and yeah, and then just your clothes, and you're set to go. Well, I guess, you know, I mean, when you look at the costs, a lot of people are going to amortize that $546 cost because you don't buy a tent that often. You're going to have a tent for maybe a decade. Um, But for people who don't camp at all, 
I guess this is a good option. It sounds very easy from what you said. Yeah, I'd say it's a good solution for um, maybe first-timers, people who aren't sure, um, and infrequent um, backpackers uh, or campers. Right. I mean, if, if you are really, you know, dedicated and you do this a lot, sure, you want to have your own tent. But if you buy a tent and you use it only a couple times in 10 years, my, yeah. my guess is, like, it's going to be pretty moldy the second time you use it. <laughs> well, so I remember when we were looking at Alaska, we were thinking of going into Anchorage and um, renting it from REI because they had that service. Are there other services beyond, and this one is called Away.com? Uh, this is called Arrive.com. Arrive.com. Yeah, and I think it's actually ArriveOutdoors.com might be their URL. Okay. Um, REI does rent um, rent gear. And there's another one in Denver called Outdoors Geek. Uh-huh. And they also ship gear um, nationally. Are they any better, worse? You know that I didn't try them. They were. I would just say that they weren't quite as easy. Um, Arrive makes it very, very easy. All they do is online versus these others are retail stores. Um, so the the process is a little more complex. Yeah. Arrive sort of streamlined the whole. Um, ordering and delivery. Right. So it's a, a little bit a part of that sharing economy. Yeah. No, it's an amazing new thing. So if you want to read more about this, read Elaine's article. It's in the New York Times. It's called Why Buy That Expensive Tent When You Can Rent. Thank you so much, Elaine. Oh, thanks for having me. Welcome back to The Travel Show. You know, we try to be very helpful on this show, but we also try to be helpful on our website, which is fromers.com, which is why there's a certain article that we update every single year. It's called The 10 Best and Worst Airfare Search Sites for 2019. We used to have it for 2018, before that for 2017. And this year, the list changed dramatically. Because an, a, a search engine called Skiplagged is now beating the competition. And it used to be just kind of like a hacker's website. It was this weird website that had to do with the fact that on certain itineraries, if you say you were going from um, New York to Los Angeles and there was a flight or you were going from New York to Minneapolis and there was a flight from New York to L.A. that stopped in Minneapolis and actually cost less than the flight that went to Minneapolis, it would say, take that flight. Now, this is called skipping a leg. It's something the airlines hate. In fact, they'll often cancel the last ticket. So this site was devoted to that. But in recent years, it's gotten much better at just doing general searches. And in our recent study, we found that in the 28 scenarios that we tested all of these search engines on, Skiplagged did the best. And it did the best despite the fact that it was no longer violating the rules that the airlines have set down. The rule right. the airlines don't want you to use the so-called hidden, hidden cities. Right, ploy. hidden cities. So you can click a box saying don't show me hidden cities. I don't want to make the airlines angry at me. Right. But even in its regular searches it did much better than the competition. Isn't that incredible? Paulie? And it even did, it did, you know, it's funny, in our top ten we had other ones you may not have heard of like Momondo that is the second best like Skyscanner interestingly 
Google Flights didn't even make our top ten. <laughs> it did not have the. It's the the fastest for sure, but it's not as good as the other search engines for sussing out the lowest possible rate to get and, from point and, A to point and, B. And the number two runner up. Which is Momondo right. is a Danish firm that whose headquarters are in Copenhagen, yeah, all, and yet if you were flying between cities in the United States, it still came up as the runner-up as the runner-up, yeah, to skip lagged. And interestingly, Expedia dropped precipitously on our list. You know, it it gobbled up Travelocity and Orbits, and now all three have the exact same results, and the results are eh, they're okay. They're they're not great. In fact, Expedia or Orbits and Travelocity as a trio came in in 10th place, which still was better than Google Flights, interestingly enough. So if you want to read how we did the study, if you want to read about some tips on how to best use these different search engines, please go to Fromers.com, look for the 10 best best and worst airfare search sites of 2019. I think you'll find it's going to save you a lot of money, take you five minutes to read, but could really help on your next trip. We thank you so much for listening. To those who are traveling, we wish we... you a very hearty bon voyage.